What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, that was the fateful summer of 63, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Uh, the government was closed down that day. Uh, the radio talk was full of how dangerous it was going to be. I mean, literally, people were on their front porches in Washington with shotguns. They emptied out the hospitals and uh, jail cells. They were on high alert at all of the military uh, installations around Washington. I didn't view it that way, and I was not deterred from going by all that was on the radio. But by then, you know, the horse was out of the barn, uh, as they say. I was galloping down the road. It's one thing to see it dimly on the news. It doesn't penetrate your white. you having a blinders on about what's the full picture here and, and who's doing what to whom. But it was that day that I, that I came to thoroughly to grips with the fact that I had been miseducated. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I'll sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And on this episode, I'm speaking with Nan Orock. My name is Nan Grogan Orock. I live in Atlanta, and I represent Atlanta neighborhoods, East Point College Park, and Hapeville as a senator from the 36th District here in the Georgia Senate. I've concluded 32 years of service. I had uh, 10 terms in the House. And I'm in my sixth, we'll start my seventh term in January in the Senate. Nan is a Georgia senator. She was a civil rights activist and found her way to local politics after fighting against the railroad expansion in Atlanta. She was one of the earliest supporters of Emily's List. She's mentored dozens of women over her 30-year career, from gubernatorial candidate like Stacey Abrams to the recently elected congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. But what makes her really special is her ability to reach across the aisle and the divide across race, class, and party. In both the Georgia House and the Georgia Senate, she created a bipartisan women's caucus. I know Nan through my family. She was a formidable figure in my childhood and in my community in Atlanta. I think of her as someone who loves to sing, who calls it like it is, and who is always late. Nan was born during World War II, the youngest of five kids in a small town of Stanton, Virginia. Her father led their local chamber of commerce. I know Nan more in a backyard setting kind of way. So when I sit down in the living room, I have so many questions for her. 
about her life before she was a Georgia senator, before she was a Georgia congresswoman, before she collaborated with or mentored famous politicians. How did she join the civil rights movement as a white college student from Virginia? And how did she get into activism in the first place? What was Nan's first stand? Well, my first stand actually was in the fifth grade when uh, the principal's office down on the second floor, my, my, my fifth grade teacher sent me down there to carry a note to the principal. And he pulled me behind his desk and patted my little bottom up under my crinolines, under my skirt. And, you know, while he, while he's pretending to read and scrutinize this, whatever papers I had brought him, he was busy fondling me. And uh, I walked out of that office just infuriated. And what I did was I found other girls that had, that had the same thing happen to them. And we organized, I organized an I Hate Mr. Chew Club. And I didn't even dream of telling my mother about it. And we would get together at recess and talk about how we couldn't stand this guy and how he had no business doing what he was doing. And that was our that was our club. Isn't that remarkable? I realized, you know, as an adult, oh, I was an organizer. My my entire instincts were to uh, organize other people like like me to you know make sure this never happened again. Now, what our action plan was uh, uh, is lost to me in the. <laughs> <laughs> but the teacher picked up on what we were doing and called me up in front of the class one day after lunch and uh, excoriated me in front of the my fifth grade peers. Don't you have anything to do with this little girl? She tells lies, and uh, uh, I don't want to see anybody befriending her. Uh, you are not to have anything to do with her. She is bad business and up to no good, and she's a liar. And uh, just this huge thing. Um, and I'm a, you can imagine this little fifth grade girl. And I just stood there and took it and then went back to my seat. And I went home that afternoon. And when I walked in the door, I burst into tears to my mother. You told her about the principal, the club, and the teacher? Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and uh, she was horrified. And by that night, as I peeped down around the corner of the stairs looking down into the living room, they had the school superintendent sitting on the couch in the living room that night demanding uh, that, that something be done. So Mr. Chu got discontinued. He was actually uh, sent away, I mean, you know, went to some sort of mental health facility. And then my mother went over and pulled that school teacher uh, that had treated me that way out into the hall and gave her what for <laughs> and got me out of her class into another, into another fifth grade class. It hadn't occurred to me to go to her because we were encouraged to always stick up for ourselves. You got involved in the civil rights movement. I did. I I went to college at uh, Mary Washington, which was the girls' school at the University of Virginia, and they would not accept girls to be students at UVA unless you were a nursing student. I went to Washington uh, between freshman and sophomore years to work for the summer, very common place, you know, if you lived around there, to go up and, and uh, have a clerk typist job and work for the National Aeronautical and Space Administration. And I lived with my aunt, who was a secretary. My mother's sister was a secretary to a congressman. And that summer, I worked in an office where my supervisor was an African-American woman, the secretary, lead secretary over all of the, the newbies and the, and the summer help. And um, 
so I was thrown into that mix. Of course, it came from a segregated uh, southern town, small southern town, Stanton, Virginia, uh, with strict, uh, strictly segregated. Never been in school or in any social settings with uh, black kids. And so it was a whole new world of getting to know a, a, a lot broader array of people than, than were in my Methodist Youth Fellowship. So that summer, ultimately, she and other co-workers said, you should... Uh, Come, you, you, you should come to this march. And when I thought about it later, much later, they, they saw something in me that, you know, uh, we were in relationship with each other in a positive way and that, that, that led them to think that I, I would resonate with the values represented by that march. I mean, uh, they said, our whole church is going to march. Everybody's going to be there. You would like this. You should come. And so I did, although I had to uh, use a little bit of, um, I had to be a little bit disingenuous with my aunt uh, the radio talk was full of how dangerous it was going to be. Is that the primary reason you think your aunt might have been cautious is because safety or because of the values of the march? Well, all of the above. I mean, it was not considered safe to be out there. You know, there was sh- shock and fear and horror that, 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 that this mob of black people was coming to town. Isn't so- that contradictory, though, the, a nonviolent march being perceived as violent? Well, you're asking for logic uh, over emotion, and emotion is what rules the day in these assessments, emotion in politics. Uh, and uh, the, the commonplace view that being that black people are violent, that being around black people is dangerous, that all of that was common parlance. So it, it was, was totally consistent with the view of the white uh, authorities I didn't view it that way, and I was not deterred from going by all that was on the radio constantly at my at my aunt's house. But so it would have been it, it's crossing the race line is a shocking step in those days. I mean, it seems just nonsensical now. But yeah, to go a white person showing up at that uh, with no context and no background from uh, and from the south, so. She would have never let me go. So I said, well, I had a date that afternoon, which was just, <laughs> I've said this many times, but the date I had was a date with history, of course. But it, but uh, that's how I got out of the house and went to the march. And a co-worker picked me up and took me down there. So um, I didn't tell my family for months. And then it was like huge shock. And how could you be dishonest? How could you do that? So on and so forth. I, th- I mean, I told him in the fall. And it was seen as a betrayal of my aunt's hospitality to me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that, that's what changed my life was going to that march. And I tell people anytime I talk, when you get out and do direct action, never underestimate the impact that you're going to have on people for whom this may be their first contact with people standing up and being in the streets, speaking out for their values. Never underestimate because my life was changed. I talked to people all day. I absorbed all of this information and particularly connecting with people from Danville, Virginia, which is a town in the, you know, a Mill River town in, in Virginia. And I, and they were there and they'd freshly been beaten to the ground by the cops for trying to uh, exercise their right to vote and take people to register to vote. And, and I, and they still had the wounds, you know, they were still, and, uh, and the, the idea that I had been deliberately miseducated here, I was taking current events in college and were we talking about the Danville beatings? No, no, we were not. And and then, the, but the other larger or equally important thing is that I, I saw that that I had been sheltered from understanding the depths of oppression that was going on right under my nose and right all across this country. And and the measure of the depth of that oppression was the fact that people 
were willing to put everything on the line. You could have, you'd lose your job, lose your home, uh, be run out of the county. And that just was an overwhelming concept to me that I was in the, I was in the presence of courage, the likes of which you, you know, typically read about in a book. And I'm going to be on the right side of history. I made up my mind that day. I'm going to be a part of this. I'm going to take my stand. That day, I ran into a fellow student from the Mary Washington College, uh, Susie Soff, and she was there at that march. And uh, she said, look me up when we get back to school. She was an upperclassman. She said, we have a race relations committee because it's August 28th, right? School is right around the corner. And I, and I ultimately ran the, the race relations council. It was a YWCA uh, program, and these, there were on these white campuses. So uh, I just got the bit in my mouth and ran away with it. I mean, we were, we, you know, cranked it up and had a bona fide real race relations committee. And they took us, the Y took girls from campuses all across the South the next spring break uh, to Atlanta. And that's where I met SNCC people. Can you remind our listeners what SNCC stands for? Uh, student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And that was, really the, that was really the student wing of the civil rights movement, and they were more radical than the pe- preachers in SCLC were. It was a different, uh, you know, different, a different crowd. It was students. But we went down there for the long spring break, a weekend, and, I, I mean, I actually, I didn't meet Dr. King, but I was in his presence. He was, he was uh, in a classroom in the basement of the Ebenezer Baptist Church uh, in a, kind of a roundtable discussion, you know, kind of a classroom setting uh, on the, talking about nonviolence. So I was in his presence that day. Of course, I had heard him speak at the march. And then I met all these young SNCC kids. And then we went out and registered voters in Buttermilk Bottom. And, you know, and uh, how was I to know I'd be going and asking for votes in those neighborhoods, you know, in uh, 1986 when I ran for the state seat that represented that neighborhood. Um and that's so my SNCC connection was formed that weekend. And I went back to campus and took all the new stuff that I'd learned that weekend back to campus and started recruiting kids to go down to the Mississippi summer, summer of 64, uh, that we wouldn't even have known about. It, they were recruiting on northern campuses, right? They were not recruiting kids on southern white campuses to to join that huge momentous event of the summer of 64, which took a thousand students into Mississippi. What was the dating scene like in SNCC? The dating scene? Oh, there were loads of people that were going with loads of people. There was exactly the kind of behaviors that when young people are thrown in together. Uh, it's, but also it's, like exponentially, because you have all this you know, chaos going on and violence going on in the country, it seems like you know, you're bound together by large forces. Oh, exactly right. That's exactly right. But 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 then also, young people seeking young people to bed with them. You know, I mean, that was. Um, Did you date at all while you were in SNCC? No, and nobody. I, uh, people, I. You'd have to hunt to find anybody that called anything a date back then in SNCC. Uh, you just made me blush. Yeah. Yeah. No. So it was hookup culture. Uh, sure. I mean, I mean, and of course, and of course, there were people that formed marriages out of the connection that they made there, and then people that never saw each other again. Well, 
Well, we arrived. I, I, I so I go. I come down to Atlanta and work in the SNCC office. So as soon as school's out, I show up along with fellow students that I'd recruited, and we came to work in the SNCC office in Atlanta, which was the headquarters. And SNCC's organizers and the summer volunteers were scattered all over Mississippi. I didn't tell my parents that I was coming to work for SNCC. I just said, I've got a great typing job for the government in Atlanta. Oh, my God. I can't believe you hid that from them. Oh, they wouldn't have allowed me to come. Because of safety or because they didn't want you involved in this kind of thing? That's not even, that's not the cultural expectation for Southern white kids to go work for SNCC. Let me just put it that way. So, no, they wouldn't have, just like that, wouldn't have been okay to go to March on Washington. So I said, you know, it's 99 cents for breakfast down there. You get eggs and grits and biscuits and coffee and everything, and I can earn a lot of money saving to go back to school like I did in Washington the summer before. And I, and I got a job at the, at the VA hospital down there. Uh, again, a government job. Very smooth now. Well, you do what you got to do. So uh, I was found out, though, because when I got ready to go down to the SNCC office, my dad again, the Chamber of Commerce executive up there in Stanton. And he said, well, I'm going down to UGA. We're having a chamber, national chamber meeting down there. And, I, and I'll just drive you down there. And I went, oh, oh, okay. So we drove down there to Athens and he got all checked in and he said, now I'm taking you to Atlanta. And I said, oh, I just got the bus over. No, I'm going to take you over there. So he drove me to Atlanta and he said, where are we going? And I had the address of the boarding house and it was in the black community that my girlfriend had already got us a room in. And we drove up on the front porch, and one woman came out on the front porch, and my father was absolutely flabbergasted. I was in the heart of the black community. And he um, he was just speechless. And uh, I, I said, uh, you know, I'm Aaron's roommate, and, and I brought my bags by, and she said, oh, Aaron's over at the office this afternoon, but come on in, and I'll show you your room. And my dad said, what office to me? And I, and I said, well, and, you know, well, it's the civil rights office. Well, we're going down there. Let's, you know, and we, he drove, he would not leave me at that boarding house. He drove me down to the SNCC office um, in, over in the, on the west side of Atlanta. And um, we walk up the stairs of this little humble office up it was over at dry cleaners, these narrow little steps. And I walked up and he's right behind me. And uh, walk in and everybody's, uh, all these people that I had met just months earlier uh, who had been sending me all the SNCC student voices and the records and the, everything SNCC was producing, they were sending me at my, on my college campus. And Nan, Nan, hey, Nan, Nan's back. And my father's just standing there. Well, let's all go down to Pascal's and get the, get lunch. Have you all eaten? And, and my father just mute and he just, you know, follow me along. And there he is in Pascal's. Pascal's is an institution in Atlanta. Oh, yes. It was where Dr. King, the civil rights leaders, uh, you know, met for coffee and, and had their powwows and talks. Uh, it was the, the restaurant where you went to socialize and you know, eat great fried chicken. And it, yeah, it was an absolute institution and existed yet and still today has been reincarnated. Uh, and um there he was. He couldn't eat a bite on his plate. He was just, he was just overwhelmed. He was just beyond any comprehension of what was going on. Do you think that was probably his first meal with black peers? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And so we got out of there, and he went to his car to drive back to Athens. And I, 
And I said, well, you know, mom said you're going to give me some money to get started. <laughs> he said, I can't support what you're doing. I'm not giving you any money. And he said, I don't understand what you're doing. I've worked all my life to get out of poverty. You know, he was a sharecropper's son. I've worked all my life to get out of poverty. And here you are running back to it. That's how he put it. He didn't say anything racial. Uh, but and how did how did that hit you? That he did he well well one he was speaking from a true place about working to get out of poverty. But I mean it was just I mean he you know it was we youngsters you know we were young people you know we we knew our parents were clueless. It wasn't any, <laughs> but it didn't shake your resolution to stay. Oh no, not at all. And my mother, when I called her. She said, what did you do to your father? She said, he called me. Of course, he had to stop at a payphone. She said, and he was in tears. I've never, ever seen your father cry. Yeah, that's how that's how shaken to his core he was. Nan's father drove the 12 hours back to Virginia, and she stayed in Atlanta for the summer. She was just one of thousands of students across the country who were coming to the South to register voters. Nan was working in the headquarters office in Atlanta, and she had been at her new job for about a week when the news started coming in that three volunteers in Mississippi had gone missing. And uh, and our office was a nerve center for SNCC people to call into. And uh, I worked the night shift all uh, overnight, working under Julian Bond in the communications department. And those calls came in while we were there. All of that was unfolding that Schwerner Goodman and Cheney had gone missing. And then, of course, uh, they were, their station wagon, burned station wagon, was found. You may remember hearing the news of Mississippi in 1964, also known as Freedom Summer. President Lyndon Johnson called in the FBI, and that's when they discovered that the three young men had been kidnapped and tortured and killed by members of the Ku Klux Klan, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. It made national news. I mean, everything was pieced together. And I know my father said, because I would call him, uh, when Schwerner, Gooden, and Cheney, when I talked to them about that, and he's, oh, they're, they're, they're off piled up in bed with somebody. They're not, there's nothing happened to those boys. They just ran off with some women. And that was, that was how, you know, the Southern white mind r- r- rationalized all this stuff and, and had barriers up to not, to not see and acknowledge the violence uh, and the and the fact of lives being taken by racists, the level of denial, and I and it was just you know one more incredible insight into how blind racism and white supremacy supremacy can make people. What was it like being a woman, uh, a young woman involved in such a or like I guess can you comment on what it was like to be a female organizer in SNCC and what it was like to be a woman at these uh, events during this time? Well, I was I don't want to over I did not want to uh, overblow or overplay my role. I was I did not go sit on the front row of the staff meetings or anything. I very much was an humble volunteer who I guess I was 19 at the time, you know, had loads to learn. So I didn't in any in any sense call myself an organizer. I, but my understanding of the status of women and the fight for women's equality very much is rooted in my SNCC experience. I was privileged to be invited to a 
conversation that was happening at the home of one of the women that had been in SNCC. And they were talking about the role of women in SNCC and the need for women to assert themselves and reject these secondary roles of doing all the grunt work and none of the out front leadership roles allowed. There was one woman, Ruby Doris Robinson, who died at a young age, sadly, of a blood cancer, but she ran that SNCC office. I mean, she was the she was the backbone person and she'd done all the direct action. She'd been beaten, she'd been jailed. So there were women that had absolutely critical and prominent and vital roles like Ruby Dars Robinson, but the guys were out front and uh, driving decision-making and being the public face of the organization. So from that, women that went through that, you know, were clearly aware, keenly aware of the disparities and the gender inequity. And so that conversation that I was in that day with them and I was was privy to uh, was uh, an eye-opener for me, to, you know, a whole different way to understand that experience and to learn from them and their, and their experience, which was much greater than mine. And um, it was my pathway into the women's movement. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Nan continued to be an activist, and for the next two decades, she would continue her work, get married, and settle down. And when she had two little boys, both under the age of three, politics found its way to her door, quite literally. The railroad was pushing to expand in the heart of downtown Atlanta, and Nan knew what the consequences would be for these neighborhoods, and she couldn't just stand by. What happened in 85 is... Now I had by then I had my second child. I had two little boys, and the one one was almost a newborn. And and what uh, right here in the neighborhood, uh, in the heart of Atlanta, a rail piggyback facility was proposed. And what is that? A piggyback. It's you see trucks on the road. Well, they're hauled over to a rail facility, and they're they're moved around on the rails. They're put on ships to China, uh, where they stay in the same container freight containers, and they ride on the backs of trucks, or they ride on the backs of trains, they ride on ships. So the piggyback yard uh, is where it moves from a truck to a train, or vice versa. And they had a proposal, uh, the railroad did, to build one right in the downtown, heart of downtown, historic neighborhoods. It's completely inappropriate. And uh, the minute I heard about it at a neighborhood meeting, I, 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 I said, no, this shall not be a thousand tra- uh, tra- tra- tractor trailer trucks a day on our roads coming into downtown Atlanta. The whole thing was preposterous and they were slipping it through and they were lying to everybody. And so uh, some people were being lied to and it had a crooked uh, city council person. And I just said, no, no. And then I realized what they were doing was pitting black neighborhoods against white neighborhoods, cabbage town and Reynolds town side by side. And, um, they were pitting those neighborhoods against each other. 
and going to the black neighborhoods and saying jobs, 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 and getting the leadership to sign on and be a voice for this, and uh, uh, counting on that to overwhelm the white neighborhoods. That was the plan. Get a black city councilman. He introduces the thing, rams it through the black community that's going to be horribly impacted by this industrial facility that runs uh, every day of the year. And so I felt that I had what it took to work across the racial lines in those communities and that I could make a difference. And that if I didn't do it, if it was just some white people that were totally insensitive to black concerns and black issues and black leaders, we'd have hell to pay. So I weaned my baby at 13 months and organized no in-town piggyback. And so we worked on that for two years. We had great victories and we took them all the way to the Supreme Court. We got Andy Young to veto it in the city council. And that's when I got my insights into how bought, paid for these politicians were. The day after Andy Young vetoed that, that city council person reintroduced the same damn ordinance to allow that facility to go in there, special use permit. The day after it, the veto. When Ann was working against the railroad expansion, she got really involved with the Atlanta progressives, some of them friends with my parents. Among them, John and Midge Sweet, who let us use their living room to record this podcast. They were super involved in John Lewis's campaign for Congress, and they became very close with Nan, and they saw something in her. Out of that, people came to me, including John and Midge Sweet. John had already served on city council, uh, and they said they wanted me to run for a state seat. <laughs> I didn't know that's where it started. Oh, absolutely. They kept inviting me to come to dinner, and I was going, what? Who are these? What? They fixed a low country boil and uh, sat me down and said, listen, there's a seat that's going to open up in the state house, and we want you to run. And we know how to run races. Uh, we helped get John Lewis elected to city council, and we can back you, and we can show you how to do this, and you're perfect for this. You are the person we want. People love you. You'll you'll be able to run a great campaign, and we'll do everything for you. And I said, I'm not going to run for office. You know, I was a, totally an outsider. I wasn't an insider uh, working inside electoral politics. I was out in the street demonstrating against them. I said, I've got to go home and clean off my dining room table and tell my, my three-year-old where I've been for the last two years because, you know, I plunged into this and weaned him. And uh, he'd been he'd been wondering where Mama was because I was always in the streets working on this thing. So they said, "Oh, we'll clean off your dining room table." <laughs> <laughs> and by damn, if those boys didn't come clean off my dining room table! But it took me three months. They they hammered on me for for th- literally. I mean, really, from the summer of of eighty uh, five all the way down to Thanksgiving before I decided that I would run. I, and, I, and, and since then, I have talked countless women into running. Uh, but I had every excuse uh, why not to run. But it was that, that's not who I am. I can't do that. What are they talking about? Run for office? Me? What? And they kept saying, you're the one, you're the one, you're the one. And they kept hammering on me. And it was, it was a group of about six people who had worked on races together and who were trying to get progressives elected. And they worked with a thing called Citizens Party, which was an effort to have a third party. And they finally said, you know, we better just get some damn Democrats elected. I had so much to learn because I'd never thought through or positioned myself to be in 
elective office. So I had to, I, it was really trial by fire. Uh, and when I got there, I realized I felt very uh, unarmed and alone. And there I was, and there was no team there for me to work with. Nan was elected to the Georgia House of Representatives in 1987, and then she was elected to the Georgia State Senate in 2007. So tell me, what's it like being a woman in the state Senate, uh, organizing and uh, getting on important committees and getting uh, decisions passed? Um, it does, does being a woman uh, impact that your role at our finding uh, your allies? Step by step. I mean, one thing that I did early on was the work to lay the groundwork to build a women's caucus. I mean, as soon as I got there, women started coming to me and telling me, you know, we tried to just go to lunch together, the Democrat and Republican women, and the guys told us we'd lose our seats on our committees and we better stop having anything to do with those Democratic women. And and these were Dem- they, and these were Republican and Democratic women telling me this. And the Democratic women were scared. Uh, but I knew what we needed. I knew we needed a women's caucus. And... Uh, the first woman that ever got hired by big business to lobby the state capitol, uh, Fran Hesser, had been a reporter at the AJC and knew everybody. She covered the state capitol, so she knew everybody. And that's how she wound up getting hired by Big Oil and having a credit card. And she came to me and she said, I've got a credit card now. We could take the women to a dinner because we never got invited to the dinners. They all, you know, were curried and then lobbied by the lobbyist, and we were ignored. And you come out of the Senate uh, or the House chamber. I was elected to the House. You come out of your chamber at lunchtime, and all the big boys are being hustled off to lunch, you know, by the lobbyists. And all of us are wondering where we can find a tuna fish sandwich. You know, I want to ask you, uh, women like you who may have never expected to run, may identify as businesswomen or homemakers, moms, educators, scientists, uh, engineers, they are all realizing that if not me, who, if not now, when, and I'm wondering um, what this looks like to you as someone who has been a pioneer in politics, been an activist and been, you know, integral to building a woman's caucus in a Georgia state Senate. Well, this is the days, these are the days we've been working for. Uh, When I got elected, we were 12% female in the Georgia general assembly. And there was only one woman to my memory uh, that was in the Senate, 12%. And it took a good couple, if not three years, took, took time to build the uh, confidence in these women that, that they could survive being in a women's caucus, you know, that they, they wouldn't get crushed by the guys and punished for this. And we did it carefully by going to dinner with Fran Hesser's big old credit card and talking about our bills talking about why we ran, yeah, that whole thing that women do so beautifully, you know, is connect and collaborate. And, so, and, 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 and for the Republican women, here we were treating them like folks. You know, they weren't treated as lepers, as any Republicans were in the Democratic-run state house uh, in the Deep South. And um, first, well, we can't call it a caucus. Let's call it something. You know, it was that, it was that foolish uh, I mean, it was that it was that painstaking to get a level of coverage, and it was very critical to get black and white women working together. So we created a structure. I had strong, some strong black female uh, engagement, and strong Republican, engagement, and we created a structure where it's 
tri chairs to build the confidence that we'll always have tri chairs of one Republican, one Democrat, and one African American. Uh, and that that was going to be our structure so that everybody had a role. Everybody had a place at the table. Nobody's going to be used or abused or left out, which is a huge concern among black women, for example, that the white girls are going to uh, run this show and they're just going to be dressing on the side. So it's been a very rich personal experience for me to be a part of building up women's skill sets, networking women together, uh, connecting women to Congress, supporting women to run for Congress, or to uh, how to take leadership in your chamber, you know, have your game plan, have your money base, so on and so forth. And uh, we had the year of the woman after the Clarence Thomas, uh, Anita Hill, when the whole nation was subjected to seeing all these white male senators grilling Anita Hill about Clarence Thomas. Uh, oh, here we are again. And we took a devastating blow in uh, uh, 2010. Uh, we lost between 80 and 100 women in legislative seats around the country. Our ranks dropped, and now we're at 25% uh, in the Georgia legislature. And imagine that now. I've been in there 32 years, and we've gone from 12.5% to 25%. We've We've done another Nan Orak victory. <laughs> so uh, where we are today, uh, I, I mean, my phone rings off the hook now of, of women candidates. That's a sea change. When it used to be a liability, now it's an asset to be a woman on the ballot. Voters trust women more. They feel that women, they, they, they pick up on women's ability to communicate and, and to collaborate, and they believe that they'll be in touch with them and stay in touch with them and that they'll represent them and reflect their interests. And it, it's, a, it's a complete sea change, and there's, the, all the data is there. Now they're looking for women to run. They're looking for women. They see a woman as a more viable candidate than a guy, which is quite a sea change. So... Uh, Yes, it feels good to be <laughs> alive and up and walking around to see the, the, the days that, that we have. So we've got great women and good men that back women's leadership. Well, on behalf of so many women and on behalf of Georgia and Atlantans, I want to say thank you, Nan Orak. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. You can support Nan's work at nanorock, N-A-N-O-R-R-O-C-K dot com. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Midge and John Sweet, the Totenberg family, and Gail Reed. You can find a picture of me and Nan laughing our butts off on Instagram at The Women Pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'll never forget Jeanette Jameson. She came back down to the legislature after this really tough race. She said, boys, let me tell you, I ran against Jesus Christ, and I still won. She was that kind of uh, woman. They're terrific early forerunners, and we need to always, you know, honor those on whose shoulders we stand and look to passing the torch to the next generation.